1: It was only half a generation after the American Revolution. Another revolution occurred, of course, in France. Many historians will mark this as a watershed date and time in history, going from the early modern period into the age of reason and into the truly modern period, it was that significant. But there were differences between the American Revolution and the French Revolution, as you well know. There, a new religion was established, was created, the cult of reason. And it was based on the ideals of reason and virtue and liberty. Christianity officially was banned in 1792, and all the Christian symbols and the churches and cathedrals were covered up. A new motto became the byword of this religion, liberty, equality, and fraternity. And atheistic messages were preached from those pulpits where the gospel had been proclaimed and new liturgies were put into place. The churches themselves, the buildings that is, all the cathedrals and many of the main churches were converted for cult usage. For example, in 1793 at Notre Dame, the Feast of Reason was celebrated on Sunday morning in the nave. There was an artificial mount that was installed with a Greek temple on top. It was decorated with the busts of pagan philosophers. And at the base was the altar, the altar of reason. And in front was the torch of truth. And an opera singer dressed in red, white, and blue stood and sang, and she personified the goddess of liberty, and everyone gave her homage. The altar of reason. At what altar do people today worship? When we talk about then putting it all on the altar, presenting ourselves as living sacrifices, which altar is it that people in our culture today put it on? You know, we've been looking at worship for the last 13 weeks, and what we've seen from scripture is that God beckons us to walk with him, and this is daily worship. It's something that we don't take lightly. He is awesome, almighty, holy God, and we come into his presence. And because of that, as you look at the liturgy of the worship service that we have every Sunday, we have actually walked through that and seen what the Bible says about that. We come and we confess our sin. And he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our unrighteousness, all of our sin and cleanses of our unrighteousness. And then he commissions us for daily worship to serve him wherever we go, not just here. And then we worship the king, the king of all creation. In his holiness, we are his priesthood of believers. We are a holy nation. And we are called to worship him with gladness and to sing a new song, A new song in which he restores to us the joy of his salvation, not just on Sunday, but every day. We're to sing a new song. And God's word, not just here, should guide that daily worship because it is what feeds our deepest desire, and that is to know and experience God. We sing anew, then, a song with all of creation, not just believers. But all of creation sings this song where we give thanks to him and we bless his holy name. And we thank the Lord by doing what? By giving back to him as we have done in the tithes and offerings today. But we offer him then in everyday worship. We serve God as we go here as priests in a priesthood of believers. We are living stones that help to build his spiritual house. And therefore, we proclaim the gospel, not just here, not just behind the pulpit, but as we go forth, each person proclaims that good news of Jesus Christ as we continue to build the spiritual house and offer spiritual sacrifices to him. The Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth, and this is what we endeavor to do, and we'll talk a little bit more about that today, every day, every moment, not just here. And last week, we observed that what we do here is actually preparing us for what we're going to do in eternity, and that is to praise Him forever in our heavenly home. And today, finally, we come to one of the great worship texts of Scripture. You know, a lot of folks don't look at it as a worship text. They look at it as the beginning of the 12th chapter where we go into the spiritual gifts and all of that, that. That involves that it's a foundational text for the formation of the church, and that's true. But it is one of the consummate worship text of Scripture. For in it we see that God expects of us, desires of us, and it pleases Him when we do what? When we present ourselves to Him. We read just before we started the formal part of worship this morning from Romans the sixth chapter in which Paul tells us we, we have a choice. We don't have a choice, but we do have a choice. We don't have a choice in this respect. Every person in this, on this globe, in this world, presents himself or herself to someone or something to serve. That is an undeniable truth. What we do have a choice about is whom we present ourselves to? Is it the cult of reason? Is it the cult of modernity? Is it the cult of post-modernity? Is it the cult of political correctness? Or is it on the altar of God? Paul urges us by the very bowels of God, by the mercies of God, to present our bodies as sacrifices, as living and holy sacrifices that are acceptable to God. Because this is our spiritual service of worship, he says in today's text. And we're not to be conformed to this world. But we're to be what? Transformed. Transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. And the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So as we look at this text this morning... We need to see it in the context of what Paul has been saying in Romans. The first 11 chapters are more theological. He explains justification and salvation, deeply theological, and many would say that Romans is a theology text. Well, it is, but it's also a practical theological text because then he shifts in chapter 12 to the practice, the practical, how to live this theology out in character and behavior and relationships. How to walk with the Lord. And he begins with this worship text. That is, how to walk with him daily. And he begins with therefore. And you know what that means. We look back. What has he been saying? It's the fourth therefore in the book of Romans. The first one was found in the third chapter. Therefore, because we are all guilty and everyone is a sinner, we are subject to condemnation and no one has an excuse. That's the bad news. The next therefore is found in chapter 5 at the beginning in verse number 1. The good news is Jesus Christ came to justify us and to bring us into back, back into right relationship with God and to make us right with him. Therefore, we can be justified. The next one is found in chapter 8, that great text then that says, If we have been justified in Christ, there is therefore no what? No condemnation in Christ. And this salvation that we have is permanent. We never can lose it. Nothing separates us from the love of God. And then we come to this text this morning. Therefore, we are to be dedicated to Him. We are to present ourselves to Him at His altar. And it's the basis of all of our behavior and character and activity that flows from that in every relationship that we have. It is a key text for worship. You see, in chapter 11, even though that chapter is about the relationship of the Jews to the gospel and the rejection of it, and oh, by the way, there is going to be a return of the Jews someday. It hasn't happened yet, but it's coming. That's one of the mysteries of God. Even though that chapter is mainly about that subject in there, there is already embedded the preparation for this text about worship. For he says at the beginning of chapter 11, I remind you that even though Elijah thought that he was the only one that was out there that wasn't idolatrous, there were 7,000 who had not bowed their knees to Baal. So you see, he is preparing for this text of being truly worshipful and not idolatrous. We're to thank God, he tells us in chapter 11, because of his grace in verse number 6. His grace, and it is that that saves and not our works, he repeats again. It's not the keeping of the law. And we're reminded of his mercy, and to be thankful for that, because he has redeemed us, but he promises to redeem anyone who turns to Christ. And then he closes at the end of chapter 11 with a praise chorus, a worship chorus that leads into this text that we have just read. This preparation for worship is found in verse number 36. If there's not a preparation for worship anywhere else in Scripture, it's here. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. And God's people said, as a Scripture does what? Amen. Chapter 12 then begins with instructions on worship. How? How to walk worthy with him. We go back to full circle. To the beginning worship is, in fact, walking with him. How do we do it? Well, we do it, This text tells us. We do it. We worship God with all of our being, first of all. This is the act of worship. We worship God with all of our being. And then he shifts in verse number 2 to the right kind of worship. We worship God genuinely. Not with empty lips Not superficially, but genuine worship, the right kind of worship. And at the end of verse number 2, then we worship God to do this, to prove Him. That's the goal of worship. So we see the act of worship, the kind of worship, and then the goal of worship. In the first part, in verse number 1, we worship God with all of our being. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God. Which is your spiritual service of worship. The assumption here that the reader must make is, and the hearer must assume, is that one is saved. He is writing to saved people that have been justified and sanctified and someday will be what? Glorified. And what is this required? It is required what Jesus called his disciples to do. If you're going to follow me, die to self. You have died to self. We have been buried. Unto death in Christ. And we have been raised to be a new creature. And this is a requirement at the very beginning that's assumed in verse number one. We've already died to self. So what do we do? In worship, this is about the totality and vitality of our worship. We are to present. We are to offer. We're to give away. We're to put at God's disposal our very being and come and stand along beside him. That's what the word means. Totally yielded. Absolutely, final in presenting ourselves, not balking, not second-guessing, no hedging our bet, and to use a politically incorrect term, no Indian giving. We don't take it back. There's no balking. We present totally to God our bodies. Our bodies. Well, this doesn't just mean our physical bodies. It means our whole being, but it does include that which is substantive, not a shadowy thing, It's not just the impersonal pronoun here. He doesn't say present yourselves, although that's what he means, but it's not impersonal. He's deeply personal here. The thing that most people value most in this world, their own bodies, even though the physical body will be consigned to the grave and it will become earth and dust again, that's not what he's talking about here. But it is substantive. It's not an ephemeral idea, but tangible. It's not a shadowy thing. Give that which is substantive in your life. It's not shadow boxing. When we present ourselves, when we present our bodies to God, which includes our soul and our very being, we enter into, as it were, a physical re- a realm, a ring of reality where there's hard discipline involved. And Paul talks about this to the Corinthians. He says, this is a disciplined thing. He says, therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I don't run aimlessly. I have a focus. I have a purpose. I box in such a way as not to do what? To beat the air. It's not shadow boxing. But I discipline. He doesn't say myself. I discipline my body, and I make it my slave. So that after I have preached to others, I myself might not be disqualified. We present our bodies as substantive things. The reason we do this, we sang about this morning. We sang it when we sang from hymn 671. The reason we do it is we give back to him because he first gave to us. God who's giving knows no ending. From your rich and endless store, nature's wonder, Jesus's wisdom, costly cross, graves, shattered door. Gifted by you, we turn to you, offering ourselves You see, offering our bodies in praise. Thankful songs shall rise forever, gracious donor of our days. We're to give our bodies, we're to give them as sacrifices as we heard in the skit earlier. What does it mean to sacrifice? It literally means to kill. It means to die. It means an ultimate act of dedication. And the motive of this sacrifice, the scripture tells us, is love. Because Paul tells the Ephesians, we're to walk in love. What does that mean? We're to walk in love as Christ walked in love. What does that mean? We're to walk in love as Christ walked in love and became a sacrifice to God. You see, the motive for the sacrifice is love, and the basis of the sacrifice is Christ's sacrifice, not ours. You see, if we come today offering ourselves, believing that we have merit in our own selves to offer this sacrifice, it is empty. Our sacrifices are imperfect hmm, they're ineffectual. They can't cleanse us, of, cleanse us of our own sins. Our sacrifices are imperfect, but His is perfect. His is perfect and His is powerful. It is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the basis for our what? Our forgiveness. And He cleanses us by that blood. Hebrews, the ninth chapter, makes it very clear. Christ sacrificed Himself for us and for all sins. Hebrews 10 goes on to say it wasn't just for our sin and not just temporarily, but forever. So the basis of our sacrifice must be the sacrifice of Christ Himself. We sang about it this morning from Him 349. To whom be the glory? Not so. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who
0: yielded
1: his life an atonement. And open the life gate that all may go in. You see, our sacrifice that we put on the altar is only effectual because of the sacrifice of Christ. So our response is that we offer him what? After he has cleansed us of our unrighteousness and forgiven us of our sins, we offer him spiritual sacrifices as priests in the priesthood of all believers. We looked at this in 1 Peter 2. We're living stones that are in the spiritual house of God and we are called as priests, another metaphor, but it's real, to offer spiritual sacrifices. The author of Hebrews tells us that instead of simply lip service and empty hearts, in fact, we offer him sacrifices of praise that come from our lips that please God because you see the innermost being is committed to it. Sacrifice. A living sacrifice. It means a sacrifice that is alive. You know, when they Sacrificed in the Old Testament. They slew the animals and it was a dead animal on the altar. But he calls us to be a living sacrifice. What does that mean? Once we were dead in our transgressions, but we have been buried unto death in Christ and our sins have been buried and then we have been raised in newness of life. We are now alive in Christ. We have been raised in him. It's a living sacrifice and it's not dead empty works. No, we're not robotic zombies that just go through the liturgy and just recite the Lord's Prayer emptily. No, we don't serve futilely dead gods and empty phrases. We give a living sacrifice, our lifeblood, serving with vitality and energy from our innermost being because why? Christ has given us the drink of what? Flat water. Dead water? No, sparkling water, living water, flows from us, from the innermost wells of our being. It's a living sacrifice. It's a holy sacrifice, which is pure. It's a holy sacrifice, which is pure and sacred, morally blameless. Not because we are, but because Christ has cleansed us. It is a holy sacrifice, which is perfect, because we are perfect. No, no, we're not perfect. No, we're not yet, but we are being made perfect. It is a holy sacrifice because we are allowing God to do what? To make us into who he called us to be. And that's what it means to move toward perfection. It is a holy sacrifice because we are set apart. We are consecrated. We are sanctified for God's use and purpose. I am thine, O Lord. We are sanctified The third verse says, "'Consecrate me now to thy service, Lord. "'Set me apart for thy service, Lord. "'By the power of grace divine, "'let my soul look up with steadfast hope, "'and my will be lost in thine.'" It's an acceptable sacrifice. That means that it's a well-pleasing thing. It's a combination of a couple of words which mean inherently good, you, inherently good, well done, well done, my good and faithful servant, Well done, that which is of great value, the sacrifice that we give to him, is good. But it's good and acceptable only because the sacrifice of Christ has already been accepted by God. The other word is pleasing. It is a well-pleasing sacrifice. Our ultimate goal. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, after that great text that we use often at funeral sermons, about this earthly tent fading away, and then we have a building in heaven that is erected for us. Then he says this, whether I am absent or present with the Lord, this is our goal. Our goal is to please him. It's that kind of sacrifice. What pleases God? What pleases God? Sacrifices that are sincere in their humility, not endless works, Not endless dead animals, but a broken spirit, and the psalmist says a what heart, a contrite heart. What does the other prophet say? What does Micah say? What does God desire? Not endless physical animal sacrifices, but what? What does he require of you, O man, O woman? And of course we know it is to do what? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly in the sight of God. It's an humble sacrifice that makes it acceptable. And it is a pleasing sacrifice because it is obedient. You know, this is what Samuel said to Saul. He doesn't want your physical sacrifices one after the other. He doesn't want you to become that kind of priest. It is better to what than to sacrifice? It is better to obey. Than to sacrifice, he said. It's those kinds of things that describe the sacrifice that we put on the altar. And then he comes to this transitional statement at the end of verse number one, which is your spiritual service of worship. It's translated many ways by many different versions. In the NIV, it says, This is your true and proper worship. The ESV says, Which is your spiritual worship? The King James Version puts it, Which is your reasonable service? The New Living Translation says, This is truly the way to worship Him. It's two words translated many ways. It literally means logical liturgy, and that doesn't seem to make much sense. So we unpack it a little bit. It's the word logicon, which is based on the word logos, pertaining to human reason. You see, it's that kind of service. It is a reasonable service, but it can be translated not just as reasonable, but spiritual. And when we looked at 1 Peter 2, that's the way it was translated. Remember the text where it says, To yearn for the sincere milk of the what? of the word, the logicon. That is, that is which is produced by the logos of God and our reason. The other word is the one that we get for liturgy, lituraya. And it means sacred ministry. Sacred ministry performed for God, doing service for God. And you put these two together, and what the meaning is, it's sacred service to God because it's based on God's Word. It's not because of something that we have invented, but because God's Word that we read, the Logos who is in us, then informs our reason to serve Him spiritually. You see, it is, once again, motivated by and empowered by God. We sang about it this morning. In verse number 2 of hymn 671, God who's giving knows no ending. What did we sing? What did the words mean when we said, now direct our daily labor, lest we strive for self alone. Born with talents, make us servants fit to answer at your throne. You see, this is a transitional idea. It comes at the end of verse number 1. What it does is, this kind of spiritual service of worship that we do, he has already talked about doing it with all of our being. But it points to verse number 2 as well because it describes what right kind of worship is in terms of it being genuine and seeking the right goal. So then we come to worshiping God genuinely in verse number 2. We need to remember this. What does the Father seek? He seeks persons who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. True worship based on his word. True worship with the aim focused on him alone and not idolatry. Spiritual worship that is not materialistic. Spiritual worship that comes from our innermost being and isn't superficial. You see, this is impossible if it's based on a worldly foundation. This is impossible if it's morally tainted. What this is talking about, friends, is our worship must be properly based and, and properly motivated. The spiritual formation of worship that he's talking about here, I think, we're given two options. We must decide. What shapes us? What is the formation of our worship? Everyone worships something. Every person presents themselves to someone and serves something, as Paul has said in Romans 6. And how are we shaped for that worship? And what is its purpose? Are we shaped for worship by God and by his word? And for his purpose or on the other hand are we shaped for self-gratification by the world its demands and our own desires bottom line are we going to be godly spiritual beings or are we going to be worldly materialistic beings you see Paul challenges Timothy and 2nd Timothy about this remember he says that we are to be worthy workmen and in being worthy workmen we are not to be ashamed and then he gives this analogy he talks about vessels that are in a great house. We might say the temple. And in order to serve God, we have a choice to make. What kind of vessel are we going to be? Some people will to make this a predestination a passage where you are determined from eternity you're going to be one time of a vessel or not. I do not think that is what Paul is saying. He's saying we have a choice. We can be one kind of vessel or another. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor, and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the, to, the, to the master, prepared for every good work. You see, what Paul's saying there is, we have a choice to make. What kind of vessel are we going to be in the worshipful house of God? And yet it is a passive matter also. You know, Friedrich Nietzsche said we are to be supermen. That we are masters of our own destiny. We need to rise up and by force become who we determine to be. The scripture says just the opposite. In fact, we come under, in submission, the control of something or someone. Either God or of this world. You see, we're shaped for worship either by God and his working through us or by the world. We are vessels either to carry godliness or materialism. And he says here, then, we have a choice, and he wants us to choose this. Do not be conformed to the world. Don't follow the pattern of the world. Don't let the world shape you as a vessel for worship. You worship something, but what kind of vessel are you gonna be? Don't let the world shape your destiny. This is unworship. This is submitting to the material world, which has no meaning and no power. And we read about it this morning from Psalm 115. What happens? It's when people serve idols of silver and gold. They are, they are man-made works. And what is the price for that? They then become like the idols they serve. They become like the idols that they trust. Midas, you remember the story about Midas? Midas. One of the gods, Dionysius, then gave him the gift of whatever he touched would turn to gold. But you see, the gold and the greed that he had became his god. You stop and think about it. What was Midas' dilemma? Everything he touched turned to gold, even his food and his water, even his bed, even his horse. And he ended up committing suicide as a result. You see, we become the things that we worship Don't imitate the world, Paul is saying here. Don't mirror it. You know, there is a borderline personality disorder called mirroring. It's when people have a vacant or a distorted image of themselves. They don't have much of a good self-image. And they begin to imitate other people, another person, the speech, the mannerisms, the behaviors. And in extreme cases in mirroring, they actually believe they become the other person. The alter identity. Today, we live in a society that has this problem on a wide order. Not in terms of a personality disorder, but a spiritual disorder. We live in a society today where most people are mirroring the world around them. They are conforming to the worldly image around them, and that then begins to control their personality and their behavior. Paul is saying here, don't be conformed to that world. But be transformed. Be transformed by God. It means to change into another form. It's the same term that is used of Jesus in the Transfiguration on the Mount. He is our model. There's a practical meaning here. It means to be transformed and converted into something that is usable. Not usable. Transformed transformed into something that is usable. Outside your home, probably on a telephone pole somewhere, is a transformer. What does that transformer do? Electric transformers are passive instruments. They transfer electricity from one circuit to another or to many other circuits, and they can either step up or step down the power that comes into them. Passive instruments. You see, that's what we are in transformation. What's God's role in that transformation? We are the passive instruments. Our power is weak, but His weakness is strong. God's power transforms our weakness into strength. Our human behavior is corruptible, but God's character is incorruptible in the image of Christ. He then begins to make us over, and he is working to transform our image from glory to glory, and it will be accomplished in heaven someday. You see, he's transforming us in our power and our ability and in our character. And he's constantly doing this. He begins with the rebirth. We are reborn in Christ by his Spirit not just naturally by the water. And in Christ, he makes us new. All things become new. And he continues to do this. As we come to him in worship and we confess our sin, or if we do it in our private closet, or if we do it as we're driving down the highway and we confess our sin to him, he is faithful and just to continue forgiving us of our sin. When we appeal to him to restore the joy of his salvation, he continually renews our spirit. God is continually transforming us through the renewal of the mind that which is reasonable the human source of all service generates uh, service generates from this spiritual thing called the mind and god is doing what in us he's transforming us from the inside out from the mind out and not the outside in you see now that we're spiritual persons now that we have been raised in christ the old person is dead and the new person has been raised We are told by Paul in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, a text that we're going to be looking at tonight, what happens as a result of that being spiritual persons. We have a new what? It doesn't say spirit there. It doesn't say soul there. It doesn't say body there. It says we have the mind of Christ. It's the renewal of that mind in us through Christ that is at the heart of the transformation. So what is our role in this transformation? It's passive. Yes, we let God do it. But not entirely. It calls for us to exercise spiritual discipline and obedience. You see, Peter reminds us in the only other place that that word not conforming, not conforming to the world, not conforming is used. In chapter 1, Peter says this, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in ignorance. You see, there is a role that we have in this. Even though passively we submit to Him and He transforms us, He calls us to disciplined obedience to Him. Come, all Christians, be committed to the service of the Lord. Make your lives for Him more fitted. Tune your hearts with one accord. Come into His courts with gladness. Each your sacred vows renewed. turn away from sin and, sad- and sadness, be transformed with life anew. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And then finally, he closes with the goal of worship. What is the goal of worship? Well, the goal of worship is to glorify God. How does he put it here? And so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is a good and acceptable and perfect will. Our primary goal is to glorify God. We opened the worship service this way from Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth, why should the nations say, where now is their God? They should know when they look at us where God is. Our primary goal is to glorify God, but there's another goal, and it's to prove the will of God. To prove can mean that you test something uh, to see whether it's approved. The other is to give evidence that it's been tested, you see, and that it's good. This will of God is good. Everything about God is good because God himself is good. All of his intentions for creation and his providence are good. What does he want for you? He wants what is best for you. What does he want for his creation? What is best for his creation? God's will is good. It's acceptable, which means that it's pleasing and appropriate. You see, his will is pleasing in this respect and appropriate because it fits exactly into his plan that he has implemented. And it meets with his own approval. Well, you might say that's a circular argument. Well, it is, but it's a good circular argument because there is no one, no being, ever has been that objectively can determine whether their motives are pure or not except God. But he can. And he has determined that his motives and his will fit perfectly with his plan and it is acceptable. And his will is perfect. What does it mean? It means that God's will accomplishes what God intends it to do. And he is the giver of every good and perfect gift. So what does it mean for us to prove this will? It doesn't mean that we, like assayers of gold and silver, test to see whether it's genuine. No, we know it's genuine. It's the other part of of proving, and that is we give evidence, you see, that it is pure. We give evidence of God's goodness. We give evidence of the acceptability of His will. We give evidence of His perfection as people watch His will working through us as living sacrifices. Are we producing the fruit of God's good intentions through the fruit of the Spirit? Are we exercising pleasing and acceptable influences on others? Are we becoming perfect, that is, whom he wills us to be? As we do those things, we give evidence that the will of God is what? It is good, and it is acceptable, and it is perfect, and it is being accomplished in you and me. In Hebrews As it closes, the author says this about that will and how it works out in us. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant about which we will talk tonight, even Jesus Christ our Lord who is the shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. So we come full circle. Worship is really walking worthily with God. And the product of that worship is we offer ourselves as living and holy and acceptable sacrifices on his altar. He transforms us. We're not conformed to the world. He transforms us, and the world looks at us And they see evidence of that will of God, which is good and acceptable, pleasing, and perfect. Is our sacrifice that we put on the altar all on the altar? Have we let God remake us in such a way that we give evidence that his will is pleasing and acceptable? Have we done this in a way that we let him accomplish his good and acceptable and perfect will in us? The invitation this morning, before we leave, if you haven't done that, is that you lay it all on the altar. And you let God and his will and his being and his person and his character and all about him shine through you so that others might see him and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me?
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals. To reach the lost for Christ. To learn more about Christ. To touch the city through Christ. Train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.